Okay, tonight we discuss the successors of Herod. Uh, the final years of Herod's reign, basically from 13 till 4 before the Common Era, were very tumultuous because it was clear to everyone that of the many children of Herod from many, many wives, he had at least five wives, if not many more, five that we know of, um, no, no, serial monogamy, it's important, it's serial monogamy, there was no polygamy, although polygamy is allowed in, Ju- in Judaism, it was, it was utterly frowned upon, and so you didn't have two lawfully recognized wives simultaneously. Shlomo, okay, in biblical times, but not, not, not then. And how about surrounding societies? Uh... Was I don't. Like I, I, I don't know. It was not. It was not sp- specific to Judaism. No. 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 Okay. So in the la- latter years of Herod's reign, it was clear that there, were gonna, there was going to be a fight over the spoils of uh, his kingdom upon his demise. But what was not certain, actually, in the least, was that would, there would be any kingdom whatsoever, because Herod was not granted by the Roman Senate uh, the right to establish a dynasty. He was simply for himself granted the title of king over Judea and the surrounding provinces that are attached to Judea. But as for what would come after his death, um, he could have a last will and testament. He, he laid out who he wanted to succeed him, but it would have to be approved by the Roman authorities. And he couldn't, you know, you know after his death, know what was going to happen. So he tried, Herod, to uh, marry into the Hasmonean family and meld together the, the Idumean aristocracy, which was his father, Antipater, and his grandfather, uh, on the one hand, and the Hasmoneans on the other, making a Jewish Idumean uh, unified family. But the problem is that the two sides never got along. Um, they were at each other's throats. The Idumean wing of the family tried to destroy the Jewish wing by accusing the Hasmonean children of plotting revenge for the murder of their mother, Mariamne. If you remember, in 29, Herod kills his wife. Okay, and Herod had several children from Mariamne, who she was the daughter of Alexander and Alexandra, the granddaughter of, of Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Okay, she had many children who outlived her, including Aristobulus IV and Alexander III, who grew up in Rome and went to school in Rome, but would later be brought back to Judea to learn the ropes, to learn the governance of the, of the province, so that they would take over after their father's death. Well, the Idumean wing of the family is not so happy about Hasmonean grandchildren uh, once again returning to the throne. So they're plotting somehow, some way, to have these kids executed. Is it that hard to get Herod to kill his own children? Not really. (laughs) Not that hard. So, um, Herod's sister, Salome, poisoned the atmosphere, and when in the year 17, the boys came back from Rome, they were denounced as plotters against the regime. Augustus prevented an early attempt by Herod to execute his children, but eventually he relented, and they were killed at Sebasti in the year 7 before the Common Era. The, the, the location was intentional. Samaria, the, the, the major city of, of, of the northern part of the country, was the site where Herod had married Mariamne back in the year 37, after a long five-year engagement. So if this was the place where they had the chuppah, is also the place where the kids get executed. Um, now the, the oldest son 
from Herod's first wife, Doris, um, who was Idumian, thought that he had the succession locked up. Because after all, if the other important children of Yichus were no longer alive, then he as the Bechor should fit right in by the laws of primogeniture or just by the laws of pure raw politics, he should be the next king of Judea. But he made a very uh, terrible blunder, strategic blunder. He conspired with his uncle, Pharorus, Herod's brother, too soon, um, while Herod was still alive. And so he was imprisoned for this act of sedition. About what year? This is a, around the year five, before that's the common the, era. So that's the year before he died. year before he died. He, so he's put in jail. Now, Herod had Antipater executed as soon as he got permission from Rome, five days before Herod himself died, in the year four. So uh, Antipater the son, the Bechor, is in jail for some period of time, but Herod cannot execute him without permission from the Roman authorities. And this is a key idea, because although Herod is king of a, of a, of a country, of a state, he's only a vassal king. He really can't do anything of a political nature without permission from the, uh, his higher-ups in Rome. And it takes time for the word to get back and forth. So while uh, Antipater was sitting in jail, Herod was waiting for a word, can I kill the kid? Just in the nick of time, execution. Herod himself dies shortly before Passover in the year 4 BCE. Uh, and there's all sorts of theories about how he died and what he died from, whether it was gangrene, uh, syphilis, he shot himself, uh, all sorts of theories. Uh, but he was sick the end, at the end of his life, and um, he wanted to hasten his own demise after his, his attempt to secure a, a healing in the, Jordan, the, the rivers of the Jordan failed. Okay. Now, huh? He was about 70, 69, 70. He was born in roughly the year 73 B.C., 74 B.C.E., dies in the year 4 B.C. Um, Herod, Herod's reign preserved a modicum of Jewish national identity in that, yes, the state of Judea was still uh, its own entity, its own political entity, but he did not preserve enough of that Jewish national identity to satisfy the all-or-nothing crowd, those who wanted absolute freedom, independence, and for the Jews to, you know, uh, to carve out their own fate in the world. And so, as we've mentioned in the past weeks, especially last week's lecture, he was regarded as a usurper by, by most Jews and hated by them, uh, which led to the rise of the Zealot Movement. And the Zealot Movement will be strong for the next 75 years culminating disastrously in the destruction of the temple in the year 70. But um, it's because the, the Jewish nationalists felt that their, um, their national identity was slipping away. First, you have a, a Roman takeover by Pompey. Then you have sort of a weakling a patsy of a guy named Hyrcanus, who's the Kohen Gadol and an ethnarch. Then you have Herod, who really isn't a Jew. He's really a goy by, by, by birth and by, by ethnicity, and he runs for the show for 40 years. So the people who have national fervor are very disgruntled. They'll be even more disgruntled when the Judean state ceases to exist and it becomes a province of Rome in the, in the next 10 years after Herod dies. But they're, they're not happy, and Herod's death may be an opportunity, a moment to break out into you know, mass violence in the, uh, in the chaos and the uncertainty that follows the leader's death. Were these the Sakari? They don't exist yet. That's already later on, uh, closer towards the, the, the War of 66. But these are antecedents of the Sicarii. Okay. Um, 
Herod's last will and testament said that his son Archelaus, the oldest son of his fourth wife, Malthus the, the Samaritan, would become king. So a Shomroni woman was his fourth wife. Remember, the sons from the first wife are dead. Second wife didn't have any sons. Third wife, sons are dead. So now we're up to the fourth wife. And uh, Archelaus is the oldest, is the Bechor from the fourth wife. He will become king. The second son of the fourth wife is Antipas, or later known as Herod Antipas. It was decided that he would become the Tetrarch of the Galilee and Perea. So the king, Archelaus, is in Judea and Samaria, the heartland of the country, and Idumea also in the south. And Antipas will be in the Galilee, which is pretty far to the north, and Perea, which is the east bank of the Jordan River, uh, opposite Samaria. And then Philip, who was a son of the fifth wife, Cleopatra the Jerusalemite, the Yerushalmi, so she was a legitimate Jew, uh, would become the Tetrarch of Batania and Peneus, which is uh, regions like near the Golan and in southern Syria, or northern Jordan. Uh, When he takes over those regions, we'll see that he ends up not ruling over that that many Jews. It's not a a heavily Jewish area. But it was part of the Herodian kingdom and had to be divided up. The brothers, of course, quarreled uh, and did not willingly accept this division of the kingdom. Of course, everyone wants the whole thing for themselves. Or, if not the whole thing, at least the part that was uh, the most prestigious, the part that went to Archelaus, meaning Judea and Samaria, and to a lesser extent, Idumea. But Judea, the core with Jerusalem, the capital. So, who do they turn to to resolve this dispute? They have to turn to Augustus as the emperor of Rome. Violent disturbances break out in Judea at this time, requiring brutal suppression by Varus, the governor of Syria. And the unrest was primarily in the north, led by Yehuda ben Yechezkel, who, if you remember, who was Ezekiel from two weeks ago? Ezekiel was the rebel bandit leader whom Herod killed when Herod was the governor of the Galilee early in his career, And that act of murder led to what? Him being brought before the Sanhedrin, where he confronted everybody and only Shammai or Shmaya was willing to stand stand up to him. That was the early moment in Herod's career where he showed he was a tough guy, a strong man, who wasn't going to be weak in the the face of of traditional Jewish sources of power. So this fellow's son, Yechezkel's son, Yehuda, it's a family business to be be like the leader of the right-wing nationalists. And he's going to lead a, a, an uprising in the north where the people are, by general, but generally speaking, hot-tempered and ill-tempered. We're going to find this later on in, in the Great War in 66 to 70, that the Jerusalemites were, on the most part, cosmopolitan and not inclined towards rebellion, except for the Sikari types. But in the north and the country squires, they were always itching for a fight. So the Galileans, they're ready to, to pick up arms and kill in the name of, of Jewish nationalism. Okay. Uh, much brigandage uh, happened all across the country, and although Josephus in his writings refers to these people as just highwaymen who stole for the sake of, of stealing for material gain, we know that they were actually social messianic groups um, who thought that they had cosmic significance, that they were going to lead the, uh, Judea to some utopian end, some apocalyptic end. And they had a base of popular support among the rural uh, peoples. So, the evil king is dead. 
not the king is dead, long live the king, but the king is dead, let there not be a king other than Melech Malchei HaMalachim HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the king in heaven. We don't need another earthly king. So people who don't have a very good grasp of earthly politics, of what's really happening on the ground, all they know is uh, we would like the messianic times and the kingdom of heaven, and so they're going to act on it to try to bring the kingdom of heaven with little or no success. Okay. So Augustus takes his time in deciding this case. He takes his merry sweet time because he doesn't want to um, confer too much power with a quick decision in favor of any one man. Remember, it's a vassal state that is not allowed to have its own independent foreign policy. And one of the things Herod was good about from a Roman perspective is he never initiated an independent foreign policy. He always played by their rules. So if you want his successors, his children, to play by your rules, well, don't give any one person too much quick authority. Take your time in making the decision. There was a delegation... Okay, so Agrippa will become king in the year 41. He was appointed to that position by Caligula and then confirmed by Claudius. And we're going to spend a whole two weeks on Agrippa, even though he had a very short reign, because it's important in the rabbinic literature. He was given the title of king, which was, a, was, was brought back for, for, the, for his sake because it was taken away in the, in the period between uh, uh, Herod I and Agrippa. There was no king. There were just ethnarchs and tetrarchs, which is a lower-level title. But precisely because Agrippa was full of himself and had the title of king, he thought, maybe I can expand my powers even further, and Yeshomrim, that for that reason he was poisoned to death, that he didn't die of natural causes. Uh, but, but not by a Jew, by, by the Romans. Um, so it, it was always important from a Roman perspective not to make any one Jew at the local level too powerful, too big. Okay. Um, there was another delegation that was sent to Rome by Jews requesting the complete removal of the Herodian clan from power. What does that remind you of? Of a similar delegation that was sent 59 years earlier to Pompeii when Hyrcanus and Aristobulus were fighting over who would control Judea and who would capture Jerusalem, there was that third delegation that said, we don't want any Hasmoneans in charge, we want the restoration of the old regime, which was the, the Sanhedrin plus high priest, sort of a democratic uh, state under foreign overlordship, and no Judean monarch, no Jewish monarch. So, same thing here. You have another group that says, we don't want Antipas, we don't want Archelaus, we don't want Philip, we don't want any of these guys... We just would rather have uh, Sanhedrin and Roman rule. Because at the end of the day, you're still going to have Roman rule no matter what. Overarching Roman rule. The only, advan- the, the, the only thing that uh, a Herodian pseudo-monarch brings to the table is another layer of bureaucracy, another vicious tyrant potentially, to ruin your life. So if you just get rid of the middleman and have Sanhedrin for religious affairs and maybe domestic governance and Rome in charge, maybe you're better off than having some Idumean half-Jew claim he's the king and, and butcher people because he feels like it. That was the approach of the other Jewish delegation. But you also have governors that were just as corrupt. Ah, okay, so it's a risk. It's a risk that, the, that, that this delegation is taking, 
that ultimately they'll have to face the reality of corrupt procurators from the year 6 to the year 41 and then from the year 44 to the year 66. These are going to be some of the most vicious uh, governors ever known who are utterly corrupt and, and lined their pockets and spent only a few years of, of tenure stealing as much as they could before they would run, run off to Rome and live on an estate in the, in the Roman suburbs. Yes, so we know that now in hindsight. But at the time, they were hoping for the best that direct Roman rule would be, would, would be, would be benign and not uh, cruel and brutal. Okay, so what happened? Ultimately, Augustus endorsed Herod's will for the most part. Archelaus was given Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, as had been promised by his father, but he was not given the title of king. He was given the title of ethnarch, which is considerably lower than king. Later, Yehuda Hanasi will be given the, the title of patriarch, or ethnarch of the Jews. So it's basically the leader of the Jews of Judea, the ethnic leader, which is ironic because he wasn't really even an ethnic Jew. Um, it was a, sort of a half of an ethnic Jew, not even. Um, Antipas got the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, as he was promised. And Philip got the tetrarchy of Batanea, Golanitis, Trachonitis, and Ituria. Fancy names, you don't need to know what they are. The point is they're in the north and to the east, the, the, uh, the non-Jewish regions of the country. Okay. So of these rulers, who did a decent job and who was an abysmal failure? That's the question. Philip, who ruled in the northeastern provinces from the year 4 before the Common Era to the year 33 of the Common Era, ruled an area that was majority Gentile and was a decent man. And he was an effective governor and he was accepted by the people. Um, precisely because he ruled over an area that didn't have that many Jews, he was free to cater to the cultural interests of the Gentile population. One of the things that gets preserved as historical artifacts more than anything else are coins. So the numismatists will tell us that there were human faces on the coins minted uh, under Philip. Which human faces? Those of Augustus, who was the emperor until the year 14 when he died, and of Tiberius, who was the emperor until the year 37 when he died. So Augustus and Tiberius' faces are found in these coins. If this was a heavily Jewish region, would there be human faces on a coin? No, because of Avodah Zarah, of a second commandment, graven images, Pesel, Masecha, no, don't, don't make any graven images. Philip, although he's a Jew by religion, remember all these Herodians, even though they're Jews by religion, are not pious Jews. They really don't care. And they're really more Hellenistic than anything else. So if they're dealing with an audience that isn't Jewish, they'll cater to Hellenistic uh, desires, which are to have coins with faces on them. That's why Israeli coins today don't have... Uh, I've, I've never seen an Israeli coin with a face on it. Only the, only the bills have it. Yeah. Uh, is that a reason? I'm not, maybe it could be, yeah. I, I never thought of that. Could be true. Um, what would be the difference between a coin or a bill? Because a coin, no, no, because the, because the coin is elevated. It's 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 pressed. It's it's not a two-dimensional object. It's a three-dimensional object, whereas a bill is just a two-dimensional face. Which no, in the, in the halacha, there's a, there's a chiluk, there's a difference between paintings on the one hand, which now, which by modern standards are not considered <coughs> idolatrous or, or forbidden, and three-dimensional idols, reliefs, which are, uh, are considered forbidden. 
by most. Okay. All right, so that was Philip. Now, Herod Antipas ruled from the year 4 before the Common Era to the year 39 of the Common Era. And he is the Herod of the New Testament. We refer to him as Antipas, but he was Herod Antipas. Don't confuse the Herod of the New Testament with Herod the Greater, Herod the First, who was the famous Herod. Now, he was most like his father, in that he was a cunning, he was a, he was a fox, he was a lover of jewelry. He was a builder of cities, and he, his territory was Perea on the East Bank and the Galilee. What are the two big cities of the Jewish Galilee? The two big cities of the Jewish Galilee? Not Sfat, Tiberia, and Sipori. So he rebuilt Sipori after it had been fairly decimated uh, in, in an earlier battle. And he established Tiberius. He established Tiberia, obviously naming the city in honor of the emperor, Tiberius. What do you know? Sorry, Tiberius, I understand the correct name for Tiberius. Yeah. It's not Tiberia. It's what? Tiberius even in the original Hebrew. That, that could be. It's probably true. I have to look it up in the, t- in, the, in, the, in the Midrashim where we would have the most ancient rendering of the name. But I'll look, that, I'll look into that. Okay, now he built the city on an ancient Jewish burial ground. This is something that, that is known in rabbinic literature, the, the, uh, the dubious halakhic status in terms of Tumah Vitara of the city of Tiberia, where the, the later sages had to come up with some kind of excuse, some uh, leniency, some terutz uh, dachuk, a weak reason to justify saying that the city is not impure. But he built it on an old burial ground, much to the dismay of the Orthodox Jews. The city had to be forcibly settled, because good Jews did not want to live in an area that was Tamel and Efesh. Okay, it, There was a Hellenistic model of the city, which means that it had straight roads, it came into right angles, it had a boule, a, a town council, um, all the trappings of, uh, the cultural trappings of a, of a Hellenistic city in terms of a theater, a uh, stadium, amphitheater, those sorts of uh, cultural venues were available in Tiberias, and it was a mixed city, mixed population of Jew and Gentile. Okay, so the, the machlokas about Shushan Purim in Tiberia was because it has a wall, but the wall does not go all the way around the city. There's water on one side. So does that count as being fully surrounded by a wall or not? Does it the, must have been there was a settlement that was on that spot at an earlier time that the Gemara refers to by a different name. But... Um, it was rebuilt from scratch in the days of Antipas and then became a major, uh, a, a, a major city for Galilean Jewry. A walled city, like Akko. Yeah. That's a fully walled city, even though no. it's by the ocean, it's by the Mediterranean? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's fully walled. I don't think it's fully walled. It has a wall, but it's not, it's not completely surrounding the city. Okay, so... Antipas was careful not to offend the religious views of Jews. Despite the fact that he built a city on a burial ground, which was annoying to them, he did certain things to play it safe. He was like his father in that he feared the religious convictions of the vast majority of the Jews who were basically Pharisee. And so he didn't put human faces on his coins. Philip, in a Shagetz region, where all the Goyim were in the northeast, he did it. He put put faces on the coins. 
But Antipas, who was not a pious Yid, he was a Hellenistic person by, by, by taste, but he didn't want to offend the Jews, no human faces on the coins. He got into trouble because of a woman, his wife. Uh, Matzah Isha Matzah Tov was not true in his case. Who was his wife? Herodias. Now, Herodias was the daughter of, um, of Aristobulus. And he was, uh, he was, uh, Antip- Antipas was Herodias' uncle. He married his niece. And um, this was his undoing, that he should not have married her. To marry her, he had to divorce his first wife. Because, as I said, you couldn't be polygamous. Not that it was against the Torah, but it was against the conventions of the time, so you could not be polygamous. And his first wife was the daughter of Aritas, the king of the Nabataeans. Now, what happens when you're married to a princess, and for convenience of marrying another woman, you divorce that princess, who's from another country? Her father is going to be pretty annoyed with you. Make an enemy. And historically, the Nabataeans and the Jews were not especially fond of each other. So this is a further reason for the Nabataeans to want to really stick it to the Jews. And so in the year 36, there is an outright battle, years after this divorce, and Antipas loses terribly. Uh, The Nabataeans conquer a considerable amount of territory. Didn't she really not want to get married to... uh so, uh, okay, so uh, we don't know what Herodias really wanted other than that she wanted a lot of power. And since she's married to Antipas, she wants him to have a lot of power. Now, what happened was this. In 36, uh, he was defeated, and he faced a lot of religious opposition. He, um, he executed John the Baptist, who... We don't have to get into New Testament literature now, but John the Baptist was the leader of a spiritual-slash-political movement that wanted to overthrow the political uh, system in place in favor of the kingdom of God. And although he didn't have any uh, divisions and any, any tanks, any warplanes, nonetheless, the spiritual convictions of people can be important uh, in, in the realm of politics if enough people are dissatisfied and are turning towards uh, an ideology, you can't ignore it completely. So he executed John the Baptist, and um, he, Jesus can't, comes from the Galilee. Antipas was in Jerusalem for Passover in the year 33 when Jesus was executed. According to one version of the story, Pontius Pilate gave Antipas the right to decide Jesus' fate, only to have Antipas then say, I'm not interested in deciding his fate. You, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, the procurator of Judea, you will decide his fate. I'm recusing myself from any decision. So even though Jesus was a Galilean, and Antipas is the the tetrarch of the Galilee, still we're right now located in Jerusalem, you're the procurator of Judea, which Jerusalem is in Judea, you make the call. So he was reluctant to kill a, a, a popular religious figure, even though he did execute John the Baptist. Um, Do we know these facts about Jesus yeah. from outside the New Testament? 
Testament? It's almost all from the New Testament. Almost all. Well, the Josephus has the famous Jesus passage, which is of dubious validity. All right, so so he probably didn't write it, and we're not really sure where it can, comes from. It, it it is known to us from three hundred years later, and of questionable authenticity. A lot of ink has been spilled on the Jesus passage in Josephus. Okay, uh, now early Christianity was related to the Zealot movement and to the social messianic movements. Um, you wouldn't know that from reading the New Testament and from reading the Church Fathers. Why not? Because later the Church goes into a very soft and liberal mode of turn the other cheek and um, not, be, uh, not being militant or militaristic, but rather uh, exclusively focused on one's you know, private spiritual orientation and the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. But in its earliest manifestation, it was really like a zealot movement like any other with people subscribing to some spiritual leader who was a messianic hero who could overthrow in the real world the Roman authorities. The problem is, of course, they couldn't. It was, it was like a dream, a pie in the sky, but they wanted to. So there, there, was, there were uh, political aims that were never fulfilled, never achieved, but it doesn't mean they didn't exist. Okay. In the year um, 37, Caligula comes to power. What do you know about Caligula? Caligula, Miss Lena, who was a sister who gave, she became the the, the wife of uh, of Claudius. Uh, he uh, had he had a horse as uh, a senator, right? And he also had impregnated his uh, sister and did a manual abortion on her. Uh, um, I, a little bit. A little bit. Okay, so Caligula was a nutcase. Caligula was crazy. In the year thirty-seven. Caligula gave Philip's land to Agrippa. Remember, Philip was the, the, uh, the nice guy of Herod's children who ruled in the northeast provinces that weren't especially Jewish. And he dies in 33 of natural causes, and that region had been without Herodian leadership. Agrippa is the son of the executed Aristobulus. Uh, he's the grandson of the original Herod. And he lives the life of a playboy in Rome for a while. We'll talk about him next week. Uh, but in 37, Caligula appoints him as king of Judea, something he's unable to accept right away because he's not in Judea. There's going to be a fight for the throne, uh, and it's going to take him a few years to get there. But having been appointed as a king and the prime real estate of Judea, so Herodias, who was Agrippus' sister, urged her husband to ask for the title of king that, hey, if my brother can be a king, why can't you be a king too? So she tells her husband, you've got to press your claim, that you're, the, you're, the, you're in charge of the Galilee and of Perea, the, the east and, and, the, and the Galilean provinces, so you should be entitled to the same uh, recognition, official recognition, as anybody else. Caligula, so Antipas does this. Antipas presses the, the issue, wants to be in, appointed as a king. Caligula thinks that Antipas is being a chazer, asking for too much, so he banishes him to Gaul, to France, on a pretext that he was uh, stockpiling weapons. So we learn here, tafasta meruba, lo tafasta. You ask for too much, you get nothing. And that the woman was the reason for his downfall. So that Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus, the sister of Agrippa, 
causes trouble for her husband, who is also her uncle, when, he, when they ask for too much political power. Because as I said, Rome, even under crazy Caligula, doesn't want any Jew or Herodian with too much authority, or to stick up for themselves too much. Okay. Um, now what ended up happening was that his land was given to Agrippa. So in the end, Agrippa had the whole, uh, the whole country. He had Philip's territory, he had Antipas' territory, and he had uh, the territory uh, that, w- that had belonged to Archelaus. So he had the whole country, and he was the, uh, the title of king. Of course, when you have too much, and you have too much of a title, you're, you're going to be exposed to the dangers of an assassin, which I believe is what happened to him. Okay. Now, Archelaus was awarded the country's heartland, including the cities of Jerusalem, Samaria, Caesarea, and Jaffa. And he takes control of these lands as ethnarch in the year 4, before the Common Era. He was the worst of Herod's sons. He was the absolute worst. If Antipas was bad, Archelaus was even worse. His regime was so bad that ten years after it started, when the Jews petitioned for his removal, Augustus agreed and exiled him to France, to an ignominious end in a faraway land. Now that's very unusual for for the Roman emperor to listen to the popular demands of Jews to oust a sitting royal or pseudo-royal, a Herodian, it only happened this one time, precisely because Archelaus was such an inept administrator and the country was going downhill. Could there have been a danger of a revolt against Rome? Yes. There there was a revolt percolating and Augustus may have believed that giving in to the demands of the people might serve to cool down the rhetoric and the, uh, the insurrectionary, uh, the, the seditious activity. Um, so in the year 6, a major administrative change happened in Judea. It was no longer a, a, a separate state, a so-called Jewish state, under uh, quasi-Jewish leadership of a Herodian uh, monarch. But rather, it came under direct Roman rule as a province of the empire. This led to a rapid deterioration in the political and economic situation of the country. Because for all of the Herod's evils, at least in his time, the country did well economically. He increased agricultural productivity, and the GDP went through the roof. It was a good time, actually, uh, in terms of making money. Life was, was, was pleasant as long as you didn't have enemies at the top. But now, there's going to be a dramatic decline. So, Judea was under direct imperial control, as opposed to senatorial control. The difference is between whether a province in the empire was under the the, the thumb of the senate, versus the emperor himself. This is under the the direct rule of the emperor. And the emperor was was, um, represented locally by what we call a prefect. Later, he would be known as a procurator. From, from the year 6 to the year 41, the, the local governor was actually a prefect. From the year 44 to the year 66, he would be known as a procurator. But in, in historical memory, we refer to all of them as procurators, just for convenience sake. There, it's a title, uh, but there's not much difference. Okay. The governor was of equestrian rank. I don't mean a horse, but there are levels of rank in, in, in ancient Rome, and the, the higher rank was consular rank. Uh, certain provinces that were important had a consular figure at the top, 
who had held a position of prominence in Rome and was now assigned to, to govern a certain district abroad. An equestrian uh, rank was much lower. Uh, you were not as able or uh, politically and diplomatically savvy. So this Judea was of, uh, was of equestrian rank, and um, the setup was reserved for regions that had strong indigenous culture or who were barbarian. That regions of, of the empire that were Hellenistic or Latin in nature uh, and did not have strong local culture that was different from Rome usually would be led by consular officials. This was uh, a question rank was for places that were like, on the on the fringes of the empire, which were not Hellenic in nature, and were regarded as l- lesser quality, barbarian. Egypt fell into this category, n- a non-Hellenic culture and barbarian. So Judea was seen as the same uh, as the same way. The governor of Syria also exerted some influence because Judea is part of broader Syria. This is something that will continue to be true, by the way, until modern times. What am I talking about? How is Judea part of Syria? The first Assad, I think, one time tried to make a claim on that. Okay, so the, the, one, of the, one of the great claims that the Zionists make about the non-existence of a Palestinian people, at least in, until the 1970s and 80s, was that the Arabs of Palestine, of British Mandate and and Turkish Palestine, regarded themselves as southern Syrians, and not as a separate national entity, a separate separate group. There was no uh, Arab-Palestinian claim or or, or identity uh, until mid-20th century. So this idea of of Judea is part of Syria has a long, long history to it. Okay, now where did the Roman governor reside? Not in Jerusalem, but at Caesarea. And this is important because um, it gives a degree, not of autonomy, but of wiggle room for the Jews who would like to do certain religious and or nationalistic things and get away with it without having the governor literally on top of you. Like if the governor was residing in Jerusalem at the Antonia uh, Fortress above the Temple Mount, he could see every last thing that was going on. And you couldn't get, a, get, get away with, with anything. But if the governor is in Caesarea, 100 miles away, and it takes a few days to get there, so you have a few days to, uh, to plot, to conspire, to do something uh, against Roman rule when you really want to. Okay. Um, there were no legions of the Roman army that were stationed in Judea starting in the year 6 when it became a Roman province. Because it was a lesser province, only auxiliary forces were stationed there. Auxiliary forces not being part of the professional army, but local recruits. Were these recruits Jewish or non-Jewish? So almost entirely non-Jewish. Because Jews were exempted from army service. Why? That goes back to Julius Caesar. So that goes back to Julius Caesar, that the, when, Ju- when Judaism was declared a religio, religio lakita, a lawful religion, a licit religion, there were concessions that were made that Jews were exempted from emperor worship, 
because it's idolatrous and uh, contrary to our values, and thus there was no need to ha- offer sacrifices to the emperor, but rather in the name of the emperor to the Jewish God, but also for reasons of Sabbath observance and, and dietary regulations, Jews did not have to serve in the military. Don't think that wasn't overlooked by the anti-Semites. They regarded that as, a, a, as an act of betrayal, political betrayal, and that Jews could not be loyal citizens and thus should never be given rights. That plays into what happened in Egypt at Alexandria when you have a fight over who's a citizen. Okay. Um, the one time where there was an exception to this, where Jews were not uh, uh, exempted from emperor worship, was under Caligula. And we'll talk about this next week, Caligula's various attempts to coerce idolatry on the part of the Jews of Jerusalem, including the placing of a statue to himself in the temple that almost led to mass casualties because uh, people would not stand for it. We'll get to that next time. There was um, a nominal return at the internal level to the aristocratic rule of the Kohen Gadol and the Sanhedrin. Because as I said... Without a a Herodian in between, the Romans care about the bigger picture. The governor is at Caesarea, he collects taxes, he makes sure that the country is safe, that there there are no roving bands of hooligans. So security, foreign policy is in the hands of the Romans. But religion and local, local governance and and the judicial affairs of the state, it's in the hands of the Sanhedrin and the high priest. So it's actually a, a return to the good old days like it was under the Persians and under the Macedonians, the Seleucids. This could be a good thing. The Jews liked it like that. No independence, but it's not a bad, not a bad deal. However, this system, while theoretically very tolerant, relied upon the decent behavior of the procurators. And were they decent? No, they were very indecent. In fact, most were utterly corrupt. Okay, and what did they do? What did they do? So, most procurators took the job knowing that it was not a lifetime appointment. They were in country for a limited period of time until their reign was seen as um, so bad that they needed to be replaced. Nobody goes into a job wanting to fail unless failure brings with it personal enrichment and a guaranteed pension and a a house in uh, in Rome, which it did. So people would come in, they would steal from the temple, they would would, uh, rape the population of its resources, put the money in their pocket, complaints would go back to Rome, so-and-so is inept, he's not getting the job done, remove him, the fellow would be removed, not executed for Uh, gross incompetence or for treason but simply put out to pasture in the suburbs of Rome where he'd live out his life as a wealthy man not a bad deal so there was no incentive to govern well there was very very little incentive to govern well what what did the Jewish aristocracy do under uh, under this system what does the Jewish aristocracy always do they try and get close to the uh, procurator okay correct there's a concept in the Talmud of karov la malchut, which means what? Close to the king. Okay, now, shtadlanut has a positive connotation in that what are you trying to do? You're trying to secure political concessions for the betterment of your people, right? Karov la malchut can mean that, 
but usually means you, for your own betterment, not for that of the nation, have decided to uh, kiss up to the right authorities and you'll get local power plus uh, wealth. And as for the people, they get nothing. So the, the Jewish aristocracy, notably the, the, the leading Kohanic families of Jerusalem and um, the, the, landed, uh, um, the, the, the owners of the landed estates in the countryside, they cut deals with the regime just as they had done with the Seleucids and the Herodians. Remember, who were the big players under the Seleucids? Which family was, very, was a very prominent and wealthy family under the Seleucids? The Tobiad family. Joseph of, Joseph of Tobi, uh, the Tobiads. Okay, they, they had their base of operations in the east bank of the Jordan, and they came into Jerusalem on their high horse and, and thought they could run the show. They, bo- they, they bossed around the, uh, the Chonyo family, who were the high priests, so you have a history in Second Temple times of very wealthy, prominent uh, Judean families who are closely related to the foreign overlord. Same thing happens here. High priestly families get in bed with the procurators. Okay, this happens under Pontius Pilate, where Caiaphas is his best buddy. Uh, and they, are, they conspire to, uh, to execute Jesus. Okay, now, the bulk of the Jewish peasantry suffered. They suffered because taxation increased and uh, agricultural output was on decline. So you put the two and two together, you can't even feed your family. That's very bad. When people can't eat, or they don't have enough to eat, they are inclined towards political rebellion. So the zealot movement, which wasn't all that popular to begin with, increases in popularity. The, 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 The public is being radicalized on account of mis- uh, you know, mismanagement of the affairs of state. So the zealot movement springs up, and um, s- what further exacerbated the tensions was that some procurators were especially insensitive to the feelings of the people, to the religious feelings of the people. What are some of the things that a, a Roman procurator could do that would offend the, uh, the religious feelings of the average Jew? What might what might happen? There's something corrupt in, in reference to the temple. Okay, like what? Like what? Ring co- uh, co- wrong car. Okay, so the the worst of the worst would be to in, to disrupt the the avodah, the temple service, and offer some kind of a heathen sacrifice on the mizbeach. Uh, that they didn't do. That far they didn't go. But other things they did do in relation to the temple. What about changing coin, coin dollars? Okay. Coin the position? Okay. So one thing that that uh, already dates back to Herod was the devaluing of the position of high priest by making it something that was bought and sold by people who were of uh, l- low spiritual standing, who had no business occupying that office. Okay, and really embarrassing the office by having the procurator control the high priestly vestments. that it, um, the, the, the big day kahuna, the Kohen Gadol, were under lock and key. This dates back to Herod, but continued under the procurators, that only with permission of the civil governor, the Gentile governor, could the big day kahuna be released 
to the office holder who bought his rights to that office. So it really embarrasses the, the whole temple uh, uh, hierarchy and makes it into a joke. That's one thing. What about raising, taking money from uh, the uh, basement? Correct. Okay, so the, the money of the temple, the hektish, is something that, w- that the religion of Judaism takes very seriously. If you're guilty of misappropriating temple funds, it's a sin known as me'ila. Mem ayin yud, lamed hey, me'ila. There's all tracted in the Talmud about it. Uh, you have to pay 125% a penalty if you are guilty of misappropriating hektish, sanctified funds. What are the legitimate usages of the hektish? The kabayas. So, number one of the korbanos, but also the better kabayas, the repairs of the temple building, and certain other um, absolute needs uh, of uh, of the avodah, whether it's you know meal offerings, oil, wine, and the like. But what are you not allowed to do with those monies? Appropriate. Go, go on a trip to Vegas and then gamble it away. I mean, there, there are a whole host of things you can't do with it. Well, one of the one of the things that the, that uh, Pontius Pilate did was he stole money from the temple and used it to build an aqueduct. I don't mean a racetrack, but an actual aqueduct to bring water. Now, that's a, that's a good a good public service to have a supply of fresh water to the city of Jerusalem that otherwise without human intervention typically doesn't have but he did it without permission and it wasn't a legitimate usage of those funds so the, if, a, if a regular Jew had done this it would be me'il, it would be a big sin all the more so if the Gentile overlord uh, steals temple funds for that kind of purpose another thing that could happen is the introduction of pagan symbols uh, on Judean soil, and worse yet, on the temple grounds. What kind of pagan symbols am I talking about? Eagle. The eagle, which was the, the, the standard above the, 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 the pole uh, at the front of the, the, of the Roman legion. This was a military standard. The eagle was, was kept out of Jerusalem in deference to Jewish sensitivities for most of the period of time from Pompeii through Herod. Uh, but under the procurators, and especially under Pilate, he said, I don't care about what these people think, I'll do whatever I want. And if just like in every other part of the Roman Empire, we allow, we, we have, as a matter of course, our insignia is all over the place, we're going to have it here. And the fact that it bothers you, too bad. So this insensitivity uh, led to a real clash. Um, there, was, there was really a lot of money. Uh, tell me, I, there were over a million in the in the whole area in uh-huh. the known world Jews, I think. Yes, there were a lot of Jews. And there's there a lot of money in the temple. Very, and they were very, very keen on giving the matzahs a shekel. Yes. So it's a big box. I mean. Yes, there's a lot of money there, and the 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 Mishnah in Shkalim talks about uh, the transfer of those coins from the Chutz Laaretz from the diaspora to Eretz Yisrael, oh. because. Uh, even the diaspora Jews wanted to give to show their connectedness to their ancient homeland. Just like American Jews would give the, the shekel for the World Zionist Organization in the old days, well, that's a takeoff from what the diaspora Jews did 2,000 years ago to give their shekel. And while they gave silver, it was converted to gold because gold was easier to carry since it, 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 it's worth more per ounce. And there was always the problem, what happens if that caravan is attacked by bandits and the money is stolen and never makes it to the temple? 
there's a whole halachic discussion about when, when a Jew has officially fulfilled his obligation, even if his coin never makes it all the way to Jerusalem because some highwayman robbed the shaliach, the agent of the temple. Right, it's not for now to get into the halachic aspects of it, but the point is, a lot of money was going to the temple. And the Romans weren't so happy about this because... Uh, on the one hand, yes, it could be a good, uh, a lucrative source of revenue if you stole it, if you if you misappropriated, it, if you if you just grabbed it. But on the other hand, uh, doing that would uh, arouse the passions of the people to political rebellion. So it, it would have been better if this money just went directly to Rome. When would that happen? After the Churban. When the Machatzida Shekel would become the Fiscus Judaicus, uh, it would become a, 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 a penalty, a punishment imposed upon the Jews for having waged war and lost. Only Jews. Only Jews. Only Jews. Okay. Um, so these are, are, are ways that the, uh, the, emperor, the, the, the procurators could have offended our sensitivities. Um, well, what do Jews do about it? Can Jews fight back? Yes or no? Well, you have different factions there. Okay. So, there are those who feel that the, de- the demise of Jewish uh, of demise of Jewish nationalism is something that cannot be tolerated. And they're not interested in Judaism as a religion devoid of independent national content. We, who know the past 2,000 years and realize that for the longest time Judaism was a faith without a, 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 a state and it was just really a, a religion with ties being spiritual ties between fellow Jews around the world, not uh, national ties. So we can see how that was viable, for at least for a long time. But for some in the first century of the Common Era, they don't think that at all. They think that, incidentally, Judaism is a religion. But primarily, it's a, it's a national movement of our people in our land. And if, if the land is being uh, swallowed by pagans, demographically and politically, you do whatever you can, even if it seems absurd, to reverse the tide. That's the zealot point of view. The moderate point of view says that let's preserve whatever we can, religion being a lot easier to preserve than nationalism, because at the moment, we are very weak, and there's no way that you can take on the powerful Roman army. But of course, there's a middle position that says, at any given moment in the early first century, we're not yet ready for rebellion, but if we prepare ourselves over a lengthy period of time, we could be ready for rebellion. What's the modern-day equivalent of this divide? So the modern-day equivalent would be in Zionism. You have those in you know, 1918, like Jabotinskyites, who say, let's declare a Jewish state tomorrow. Even though demographically we're losing and, and militarily we, we have nothing, the Jewish state, Jewish state, Jewish state. And then you have those who say, eh, it's a pipe dream, there'll never be a Jewish state. It's just spiritual Zionism. And then there are those, like the Ben-Gurion types, who say, slowly but surely we'll build up our infrastructure We'll build a clandestine army, Haganah, whatever. And before you know it, eventually, in a few decades' time, we'll be ready to fight back and declare independence. So you have these different uh, approaches towards nationalism, even in the first century. Right away, fight right now, don't fight at all. Fight it when we're ready to fight. Okay? Um, 
during the, the, the first decades of the first century, at the religious level, you have um, the emergence of Pharisaic leaders whose names we know from the Mishnah and from the Tanaitic sources. It's the time of the schools of Shammai and Hillel, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Shammai and Hillel themselves probably die roughly around the year 10, maybe 20 of the Common Era. Um, their years of operations were primarily during Herod and Archelaus. They are followed by these anonymous schools, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Were they actually uh, schoolhouses, physical buildings? Probably not. These are schools of thought. And these schools of thought are not only divided on halachic matters, but also on political matters. So the Hillelites, being uh, political moderates, don't want to offend Rome. If they can avoid conflict, they do. The Shamaites, being national, uh, conservative nationalists, are looking for a fight. And in many ways, the halacha that they decide upon is reflective of their political opinions. So if you go back into the, to the Gemara, I challenge you, look at these machloksim, Beit Shammai Beit Hillel, and see if you can identify a political divide, not just a, a ritualistic or a legal divide. And if you look at enough of the machloksim, you'll see that it's there. You'll notice it. Try to view everything, everything through a political context or a sociological one. What is the sociological difference between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? Beit Hillel represents, for the most part, the plebeians, the urban population, and Beit Shammai represents the squires of, of, of the, the landed gentry who live out on the estates, and, to a lesser extent, the urban aristocratic priests who have the same interests as the landed aristocracy uh, a few miles out. That's the sociological and political divide. Why does this matter? Because the Prushim become the dominant force in Jewish life in the first century. As I've said over the past few weeks, the Sadducees had power. Their power base was the temple. And they kissed up to, the, to, the, to, to, uh, to Herod, and they kissed up to, to Archelaus, and to the early procurators, but they had no popular support among the Jews. The average Jew really was not a Sadducee. And the Essenes were in the middle of nowhere in the desert. They don't count for much. So the Pharisaic branch of Judaism is the one that is politically meaningful, not only religiously meaningful, but they're divided between moderates and, and what we might call zealots. At some point in time, there is a line in the sand that is drawn. In the Beit Midrash, a fight is waged over who would control Judaism and the Jewish national movement, the Hillelites or the Shamites. And who won that battle? No. Shammai. And it was a terrible day. It was a day that was as dark as the day of the making of the golden calf. Yom Okay, so next week we're going to discuss that. The, the, the temporary victory of uber-nationalists, of extremists, over the moderate viewpoint which will bring us in time to the war in the year 66. But it's happening over a good 70-year period where the two houses, the Batim, the Beit Shammai and Hillel, 
are duking it out. Not, over a reli- not just over religion, over halakha, but also over politics. And that happens simultaneously with the uh, evolving character of governance between the procurator, Agrippa the king, and the later more procurators. So next week we'll do Caligula, Caligula's craziness, almost a mass suicide, or martyrdom, and the reign of Agrippa the, uh, Agri- Agrippa the First. See you next week.